Hello, I'm sports broadcaster and presenter Paul Persick, and I'm taking you on a journey through sporting events that have stood the test of time. Welcome to Paul Persick Presents. Welcome to Series 1, Episode 5. Can you believe it? We're halfway through this first series of Paul Persick Presents. First of all, I just want to say thank you to all our listeners that have delved into each and every episode of the Colour World Cup from the start right through to today's Episode 5. So far in this series, we've detailed great matches, stories from legends of the game that told all before them, and the innovations of what made the 1992 World Cup so special in the cricketing world. And 28 years later, it is revered by many old and young. And on this week's episode, we're getting a young man's perspective on the 92 World Cup. Jack Clifton is an online cricket commentator who's been really making good craft of his work in recent years. He's a cricketing lover. Well, for that matter, a sports lover in general. But cricket is his number one. And from a young man's perspective, 1992 saw what we see today in cricket. Colour, light and flair. But this week's episode is all about the inspirational feats, those individual performances that turn games on its head. We've counted down six of the best with Jack Clifton this week, and that countdown begins right now. It's set. We are recording now. And we are rolling in five, four, three, two, one. Jack Clifton, welcome to Paul Persick Presents. Thanks, Paul. Very excited to be in the show. Just want to say I've, uh, I've listened to a few of the previous episodes and, yeah, you've had some pretty big guests on, enjoyed your chat with Kepler Vessels and, um, yeah, yeah it's, uh, you're doing such a great job. So pleasure to be on and, and chat about the 92 World Cup. Thanks, man. We really appreciate it. And it's not just, you know, from, from the legends perspective and the punters perspective, you know, even young men still, mm. you know, still young men and women that weren't around at the time in 1992, still talking about it with some of the yeah. older people that got to experience these games. That's why it's so revered, not just by the fan experience, young and old, but also what made 92 so special, so much colour, so much flair and day night cricket here in Australia. Well, it made yeah. sense at the time. Yeah, it was a significant tournament, I think. And uh, considering uh, how well Australia had been playing uh, in the lead-up to that 1992 World Cup, um, it it threw up a few surprise packets. We saw some losses by the Australians not making it to the final four. And then we saw, of course, some fantastic performances by Imran Imran Khan's Pakistan Tigers and New Zealand and even England and South Africa making it to the semifinals. What a triumphant return to international cricket it was for for South Africa to be able to to perform so well in in this tournament. So... um, um, a very, very exciting tournament, as you mentioned, uh, day-night cricket, but like the, the colour uniforms, which it seems funny to talk about it now, Paul, but that was such a big thing back in 1992. I can still remember, I think up until 1997, when uh, Australia went over to England and they played the Texaco Trophy and they were still wearing their creams. They weren't wearing yeah. that coloured uniform. So England took a little bit longer to uh, to click onto the idea of coloured uh, of coloured uniforms, but there was uh, there were some great ones out there. And I still see, um, yeah, when I'm going to the cricket at, at the SCG from time to time, people uh, donning the Australian 92 colours. And, yeah, it, was, uh, it really was a fantastic tournament to, uh, to, as, as a viewer as well. And you touched on that, you know, that uniform, the design and style was so constant and appealing to everyone of the nine 
playing nations, you know, we haven't seen a style like that captured the essence of 92 or any World Cup since then, you know, despite what happened in 1996 and the next World Cup where they adopted that same formula where in the days we don't see any licensing agreements or endorsements or anything like that. It was just one style and that was it. It was just magnificent. And those 92 shirts are still some of the best in one day cricket. I'm still craving one after 20 years, no doubt about that. Yeah, they're nice. Uh, no doubt about that. Now, but there were also uh, some heroic feats in the tournament, as you mentioned, you know, Imran Khan leading Pakistan to triumph. But there were also a couple of others. And today we're counting down six of the very best, you know, whether it's batting, bowling, fielding, or as you mentioned, Jack, uh, leadership that uh, led to world triumph. The 92 World Cup housed more, I reckon, more inspirational feats in one tournament than any other World Cup that we have seen. You know, you've got your Shane Warne spell of 99. You've got your Ricky Ponting century in the 2003 final. Gilly's century yeah. in 07. And MS Dhoni's knock that lifted India to the 2011 trophy. But those were all during one game, you know, a final, yeah. you know, because it's such a big occasion. We saw yeah. more of that in 92 than what we saw in any other World Cup. And we're going to start off the countdown. Number six. With number six, one Captain Crow. Yes, Martin Crow, the captain of New Zealand, he was going through a bit of a rough patch in the lead-up, Jack, in England's tour to New Zealand. Yeah, runs hadn't been easy to come by, and I think there was certainly some question marks being thrown up by... Uh, the New Zealand and I guess the wider cricketing world uh, about whether he was the right man to lead New Zealand uh, into the World Cup uh, and history tells us they were right to right to back him over 700 runs in an absolutely fantastic tournament made 91 uh, in the semi-finals for New Zealand he was just someone that seemed to thrive under the pressure of of what had proceeded before him I think cricket is a, is such a we hear that it's such a mental game uh, and you can look at, at the history books and look at how Mark Taylor fought back out of form um, in 1997 and Steve Wall uh, in the later part of, of his career when when the knives were out for sharpening. And for Martin Crow to do that as captain, particularly with um, the, the World Cup here in Australia and uh, obviously wanting to perform for his home country and such a huge part of, of that New Zealand side, taking nothing away from the other 10 players that regularly lined up for the Kiwis, he was really the backbone and um, he was the one that had to, to lead them from the front. So uh, it, for him to be able to turn that form around and, and bat so brilliantly, he was such a, a, a delightful striker of the ball, Martin Crow. He had such good placement when he was batting in form uh, and I think uh, that those that backed him probably knew that that was going to come to the fore once the tournament was there. And I guess even even if he hadn't performed, you would I think you would rather take an out-of-form Martin Crow into, uh, into a World Cup campaign rather than perhaps risking it on a, a, a first-class player that didn't have much experience or one of those fringe players that was trying to make a name for themselves, Paul. Because you touched on that very well because New Zealand had lost so many players beforehand because it was the start of a brand-new era in New Zealand cricket. Cricket, you know, they they lost Jeff Howarth, they lost Bruce Edgar, they lost Richard Hadley two years ago, that great all rounder in 1990, and they were yeah. going through a transitional period. They had players like Chris Harris, Cairns, uh, Mark Greatbatcher, as who was we mentioned uh, off the air, and of course you got Martin Crow, who was made captain of New Zealand. Yeah. And there were murmurings around Jack that when I was speaking with Danny Morrison in the earlier episode of the series that he nearly didn't play at all; he would have been dropped. Mm. Yeah, and it would have been it would have been absolute travesty. Uh, I think, particularly with all those players that had left, and let's not forget, 
Over the last probably decade, I think New Zealand have, have, have vastly improved as a, as a test-playing nation. But oh, yeah. for a long time, they've been a very dominant one-day nation. You look at the 1996 World Cup, um, and they were knocked out in the quarterfinals, but Australia had to had to chase 280-plus. It was a, yeah. a wonderful century to mark war, which eventually got Australia home in that game. Uh, but for a long time, New Zealand have had some great battles with Australia. When we had the old triangular tournament. Uh, that, uh, that, that Those were the days. Yeah, uh, of the, 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 the round-rob matches followed by the – the best of three finals. Uh, so, yeah, I think um, the the New Zealand public would have known that if Martin Crowe could get his side on the same page and 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 develop, develop a rapport with his players and get them to to really follow him, similar to what Imran Khan did with, with Pakistan, we'll talk about that a little bit later, um, then they could have been able to get the best out of him. But but what what are some really good young players at his disposal as well? Chris Harris, vastly underrated um, one day all-rounder and Chris Cairns one of the most uh, destructive batsmen up there with Lance Clues in that kind of 1990s period it's um, it probably someone that would have really suited 2020 cricket if he was yeah. born 10 or 15 years later um, but a, a, nonetheless a fantastic performer for New Zealand so Martin Crowe did such a marvellous job to get them all on the same page young inexperienced players that hadn't really had experience in sudden death cricket like this and it wasn't just Crow's batting, you know, that really took New Zealand back to the forefront in, the, in that World Cup. It was also his craftsmanship, his leadership, because without those world-class players that New Zealand would proceed to have, Crow got really crafty. For instance, in that first game against Australia where he got an off-spinner to yeah. unleash the bowling, which was a rarity in one-day cricket at the time. Yeah, open, open the bowling with Patel. It was... Something today that we, we probably wouldn't uh, blink twice at, Paul, but in, in 1992, that was yeah, really showing, throwing the cat amongst the pigeons to, to open with, uh, with an off spinner. Um, and, and they're the kind of things I think you need uh, as a captain. Um, you need to be able to have that, those ideas and those, those fresh thoughts in your mind to perhaps change the game and throw a bit of a curveball um, at, at, at the batting side or at the bowling side. And, and Martin Crowe did that. And not just his captaincy, his leadership as well. And, and leadership doesn't necessarily come with captaincy handy in hand. I don't think it's something that can be taught. It's something that you're either born with um, or, or something that you can develop over time as an international player. And that's something that Martin Crowe had. And I think with some captains, and, and we've seen it with, particularly with with Australia in their heyday, uh, being behind Alan Border and, and Steve Waugh as, as they crafted Australia into a match-winning side, those those players uh, are the ones that you you, you really want to um, support, and you you want to go that extra extra mile for. It's almost like being in the trenches with them. You they'll get you to go that extra mile, and Martin Crowe did that for New Zealand. And did he really push himself that hard that maybe he would have been the winning captain of the World Cup final? Because we're going to go to that semi final where he again batted so superbly against that Pakistan attack, made ninety one. Then he got injured. He pulled a hamstring in that semi. All, the question always begs in that semi-final when he got injured, did he push himself too hard? Because he had to watch John Wright captain the side when New Zealand went out to field. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I guess you could also argue that if he hadn't pushed him so hard, himself so hard, New Zealand might not have made it that far. But um, I guess the, they're the nagging questions that, that always linger when something like that happens, Paul. Uh, but that was a masterful innings. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a travesty he didn't get those further nine runs to be able to to make a century on, on what was one of the biggest stages at the time, the semi-final against Pakistan. And it really took an inspired performance by the by the Pakistanis to, to make sure that they stayed alive in the tournament and inevitably went on went on to win it. And, and they had a great leader themselves in Imran Khan. So probably uh, two of the best captains in the World Cup coming toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with one another. Uh, Imran won that battle, but, but Martin Crowe, um, had done such a marvellous job to get New Zealand as far as they can. 
Um, and it would have been absolutely heartbreaking for him to have to watch on the sidelines and, and probably knowing deep down, even if New Zealand had won, he, he probably wouldn't have been able to make his, uh, make his way into the side for the final. It would have been absolutely gut-wrenching to be sitting on the sidelines uh, watching that unfold. And unfortunately, a disappointing evening for, for the New Zealanders. Yeah, because he was a, a real bad hamstring pull that day and he basically had to you know put his feet up in about 72 hours because it was three days until uh, New Zealand, if they had made it, they would have had to play either uh, England or South Africa in that final. Speaking of of England. Number five. For the wrong reasons, they land on number five <laughs> spot. Number five. Who would have thought, one, a chicken farmer would be a cult hero in the world in the game of cricket? And mm. secondly, who would have thought matches in regional areas would be a big winner? That's mm. another innovation that, you know, really struck a chord with Australia and New Zealand fans. Uh, but also this game, uh, England versus Zimbabwe in, of all places, Albury. Firstly, yeah. region, regional areas hosting matches in World Cups. We don't see that anymore today. No, it, it, it should certainly make its uh, make its way back. It's, um, yeah, disappointing that that's, that's the case because much like we talk, particularly where I'm, I'm from, Paul, in New South Wales, the, the regional country areas are, are, are really yearning out for, for rugby league to, to go to, to some of those regional areas out, out to Wagga and uh, different places like that, Mudgee as well. Um, and, and I think it's great. It's great to be showcasing our sport um, to, to like people from regional areas. But there, that, was, that was certainly a fascinating, a fascinating day for, for England. And unfortunately, when you look through the history books, this has happened more than a few occasions for them. Of course, there was, I think it was the 2007, 2020 world cup where they were stunned uh, by the Netherlands and, uh, and beaten mm. in a game there. The 2011 uh, world cup where they were beaten by Ireland, 2015 beaten by Bangladesh. So there is a, is a bit of a, a list going on, but I, I think that really started it in 1992 and Edda Branders, um, Probably more well-known in cricket circles for, for the verbal stash he had uh, with Glenn McGrath when Australia was playing uh, Zimbabwe. But he was a very talented bowler. Probably um, had a few extra kilos than, uh, than the modern bowler, but uh, he was, uh, yeah, he was a, a great swing bowler. And, and up there with Heath Streak and, and also Paul Strang for that Zimbabwe side was one of the real, uh, real danger performers. And uh, what a performance for him. That, that, I'm sure if we were able to chat to him, he would say that, that would probably be one of the highlights of his of his career because Zimbabwe didn't really get enough runs on the board to even be in consideration for winning that game, but it was a really inspired bowling performance and and really good fielding performance from as you mentioned, uh, Paul off off air, uh, an amateur side. I think it was nine of those players uh, were uh, were still kind of working or had part time jobs, and of yeah. course the chicken farmer Edward Branders is as well one of those. Um, and that, that makes it a, uh, even more remarkable, probably something that will never be repeated considering how professional uh, the game of cricket is these days. Yeah, because those that, that was around the final few years of, you know, the Minnow Nations becoming really amateurs because we'd only seen Sri Lanka as the true Minnow Nation of one-day cricket in previous World Cups. Then we saw Zimbabwe emerge in their yeah. first tour of Australia and New Zealand after qualifying for the World Cup two years mm-hmm. before. And when they were bowled out for 134 in that game, it was really academical because Zimbabwe at the time were just playing for pride. They were just playing for skill. They were playing for public credibility yeah. and rightfully so because they were still, you know, a young cricketing nation. And for England, you know, then, then it would have been an easy target, you know, 134 runs, get it all within, you know, 25 overs, you know, head off for the pub and have a beer and get yourself set yeah. for the finals. But uh, when Graham Gooch got dismissed first ball by Edo Brandes, many, many of the 6,000 that were thinking, hang on, is this going to be a contest? Yeah, that's right. And it's, it, that's what's so great about sport. It's, 
Uh, there's no there's no script written and, and no one knows what's going to happen. And that was just such a such a wonderful performance by by Zimbabwe. And, and we saw how that assisted them not just in the one-day format of the game, but also in, in the test format uh, in in the years to come. Obviously, the Flower, the Flower Brothers were, were were still playing in this 92 tournament, but they really developed. Heath Streak became arguably the, the greatest captain and greatest fast bowler that Zimbabwe has ever produced. Um, Alastair Campbell uh, and uh, Grant Houghton, some of those top-order quality batsmen um, that were able to, to perform at the highest level for Zimbabwe. And I think that that gave them the belief that, that we're not just in the 92 tournament, but further, but further along that we're not just here to make up the numbers where we're willing to, to take it toe to toe with one of the, 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 the nation that has discovered the game of cricket, but yeah. one of the real powerhouses of the tournament. And, and I guess that showed just how unpredictable the world cup um, can be. Um, and, and yeah, what a performance it was by Branders that you can farmer to, to get Zimbabwe home in, in one of the, uh, the great one day finishes. And amazingly, you know, only a couple of those players had starred in their pre- Previous win in the World Cup nine years before, amazingly against Australia and Nottingham yeah. back in 1983 in their very first World Cup match. And amazingly, those players kept on going. You know, they had part-time mm. jobs. They were playing cricket as a side. And then they got another win nine years later. And it really started that whole era, as you mentioned, of some great captains, some incredible batsmen and bowlers, and some great all-rounders, too, especially one Henry Alonga, who I rated as one of my favourite Zimbabweans uh, of all time just years later. And a rewarding one, too, because months later they got test status. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, and, and, and unfortunately... People that are, that are watching, particularly some some younger people, uh, Paul might just kind of look at the form guide of what we've seen from Zimbabwe. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of turmoil and and, and horrible things happening in the country, which has meant that sport obviously isn't isn't right at the top of the the agenda. But I know when I was growing up in the 1990s, um, Zimbabwe were were a side that were you didn't really want to come up against because they were a bit of a dark horse. They had some good batsmen, they had some bowlers that, that were able to swing the ball, and they had a solid fielding unit. I still remember as late as the 2003 World Cup when Andy Bligno um, put an absolute uh, hurting on Australia with a, a lowered innings down at number oh, seven. No. <laughs> Slapping the ball to all areas of of the ground, and in the '99 uh, World Cup in the Super Sixes, they they set Australia, I think, 280 to win, and Australia only just got there. So um, they've they've produced some wonderful memories. But yeah, it's pretty good for your first two World Cup scalps, uh, nine years apart, to be Australia and England. It showed uh, the talent that was available in that country, and uh, yeah, a memory that I'm sure Ed Branders will kind of nurture for the rest of his life against the, a great English side. But for the locals that were there as well, you know, from from the Albert from the Albrunians, if I could say so myself, point of view, this was an experience I don't think they will ever get to share again. You know, sad to say for all the people that were there, because at the time, cricket wasn't as professional as we see it today. You know, we don't see as many big time stadiums uh, at that time. You know, we and, and Albury wasn't the only regional area that hosted games. You know, you had Eastern Oval in Ballarat, you had Mackay that unfortunately got two balls of a game before it got abandoned. Then in New Zealand, I think you had Carisbrook in Dunedin and then possibly one of the most beautiful regional grounds in the world, Pukakera Park in New Plymouth. And we're getting into a game that was there a little bit later on. At Fifth Quarter Tees, we're devoted to helping clubs access their own clubwear and merchandise throughout the season. No more worrying about that start-of-season mass purchase. Of 100 club jumpers that take two years to sell and have to be stored in a clubroom cupboard, 
Instead, club coaches, members, and supporters can have 24-7 access to all club wear and merchandise, from jumpers and t-shirts to backpacks and mugs. And all it takes is a click of a button. Fifth Quarter Teams, making life easier for clubs and volunteers. Number four. And we're going to go now to number four. And this one involves a certain fielding freak that has a photograph of him immortalising him as a cricketer, one Jonty Rhodes. He is our number four spot. And he really made a statement in that game against Pakistan. But before South Africa, you know, got into the World Cup, they were facing sporting isolation, a lot of political turmoil. Then in 1991-92, they finally came in. And uh, in that 92 World Cup, they, mentioned, they said to all of the cricketing world, they're here to stay. And I think they showed everyone how athletic they were with uh, with their fielding performances, not just that, but it, throughout the whole tournament. And I think when you think of, of great fielders, obviously uh, RT Ponting probably uh, tops the list if you're an Australian fan, but I know when I think of great fielding abilities and, and runouts and, and really smart catches, Jonty Rhodes is right up there. It was so great uh, when uh, when Australia and South Africa would battle because it would be the jostling of Rhodes against uh, Ponting, but not just with their batting, but with their fielding ability. And that was uh, that was some run out and let's not forget as you mentioned just previously Paul um, without being disrespectful to, to the players that played in that era yeah it wasn't as professional as it is today which makes John G. Rhodes fielding uh, exploits uh, just as impressive it was um, I guess ground fielding didn't have the focus um, that it has today where every uh, players will be dropped for, for poor fielding displays there yeah um, back in the 80s and 90s there wasn't these direct hit runouts or Fantastic ground footing that we saw um, in, uh, I, I guess, in uh, in today's uh, today's game. Uh, but Johnny Rhodes, what a, yeah, what a great fielder he was, and um, just so quick as well, just so so light on his feet, and be able to was able to make so much ground, and just had such a, such a good eye. It looks so easy on TV when you see these runouts made, but it's one of the hardest things to do as a cricket player. And he was he was brilliant, and he's such a natural athlete too. You know, at the same time, you know, he was playing field hockey, and uh, you know, got into the squad to. Qualify qualify for the 92 Barcelona Olympics. He was just so naturally gifted at his craft. But like him and some of the other players, apart from Kepler Vessels, who had played for Australia, South Africa as an international side, was still an unknown quantity. You know, not many of the fans or the players knew who they were, apart from, as, as I mentioned, Kepler Vessels. And for them to come to Australia and make that big statement, you know, by not only winning against Australia, but qualifying for the semifinals, it just showed that South Africa... It showed that they never left. It was like they, they played like as they were powerful back in the 70s. Yeah, well, it probably helped them as well, the fact that no one really knew anything, uh, uh, well, no, number one, about uh, about South African sport and number two, about South Africa. Like it, it had all been shrouded in controversy for, for the last 20 or 30 years and that probably worked their advantage. It's not like today where there's cameras everywhere and you can find out informa- information even about countries that might be a little bit closed. So they used that there, to their advantage. But again, a great leader there in Kepler Vessels who uh, was really able to marshal his young troops um, to play some really exciting cricket um, and, and a really good style of cricket as well. Like they, uh, they really put it to some, to some other teams. They had great fielding, um, really balanced bowling and batting lineup. And we're, we're very unfortunate, as I'm sure you've mentioned in this program before, Paul, uh, with 
what happened with that semi-final and the rain delay against England and all of that stuff that, that came out in the end. But um, they, they can be very proud of the performance they put in. And uh, to, 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 and I guess it kind of, it was the, the start of a, of a chapter for a lot of those, uh, a lot of those players, Jonty Rhodes being one of them who went on to have great success with South Africa over the next decade. Um, and, and, and Kepler Vessels can be proud of uh, the impact that he had on that team. And, and I know South Africa's maybe fallen off the wagon a little bit over the last 18 months, but since 92, they've been right up there in the, in the high echelons of, of world cricket in, in ODI and test format. So let's look at, you know, Rhodes as a fielder, the best example from this World Cup. It's two for 135 Pakistan. You know, they're chasing down 194 from a reduced 36 overs after the rain had came in. Uh, Inzamam al-Haq was batting with Imran Khan, the captain. They got themselves into a good partnership. Then the ball got deflected to backward point off Inzamam's pads. Jonty Rhodes fields the ball and then somehow takes this great picture, full-length dive, straight ahead, demolishes the stumps before Inzamam al-Haq even has a chance to reach the crease. There, he's just made himself a slice of cricket immortality. It doesn't uh, bode well for Inzamam al-Haq, does it? We've seen no. some bad runouts from the big man. He was a great batsman, but he was on the receiving end of something here. And, uh, yeah, that was amazing athleticism, the way that he was able to pick up that ball and with Paul was almost uh, as in it was one motion, picking the ball up and then diving Superman-like towards the stumps to uh, to splay the stumps everywhere, bowels going flying. And that was, a, as you mentioned, two for 135 when Inzi was dismissed. And that was just a huge momentum shift there for South Africa. And that's what I think that's what coaches have realised over the last 20 or so years. That's what fielding can do. A big moment like that, a, a, a really nice catch or a smart piece of ground fielding or, or a direct hit run out like we saw. Well, not uh, not that it was a direct hit, but a run out there from, from Johnny Rhodes can really turn the momentum. And uh, that was exactly the case that day. And uh, Inzman was looking good. He was looking good for a big score. I think he was on 48 that day and um, was yeah looking like he was going to bring up another half century. But it wasn't it wasn't to be, and and that was one of the real highlights of that tournament for South Africa. And that turned to be, and that run out, you know, turned to be quite a, a changer for South Africa because they go on and win the match because Pakistan's innings really fell apart after that. They never really recovered. It was just that one sudden moment that you know really motivated the team and got them going for those final uh, fifteen to twenty overs of the that rain reduced match. And and that photograph was uh, Jim Fenwick, by memory. Jim Fenwick uh, photographed that run out at just the right moment to immortalise Jonty Rhodes uh, forever mm, in the right, cricketing yeah. world. Whenever when everyone talks about Jonty Rhodes, the first thing that comes to mind is that run out in Brisbane. Unbelievable. Yeah, right. A remarkable piece of athleticism. Number three. Now, number three. We mentioned regional matches earlier on uh, in this tournament, uh, in this podcast, Jack. Another one here was, as I said, at the most beautiful regional ground in New Zealand, at Pukekera Park in New Plymouth. For a time, 300 runs from both sides were almost yeah. hidden because no side had scored 300 in both World Cup matches. Both sides in a World Cup match, I should say, had scored 300 never before. That was until the 23rd of February. It was the third game, Zimbabwe and Sri Lanka. And some people don't realise that the ground was quite small. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's uh, similar to uh, to a lot of the uh, the New Zealand venues that then it's certainly not uh, not the biggest grounds around. But yeah, what a uh, what a day it would have been for for the visitors that had um, gone to that. And uh, like as, as we've spoken about before, Zimbabwean amateur side, uh, Sri Lanka only had been in the international circuit for ten years. Well, they re- they'd received their test status in nineteen eighty two. 
Um, but uh, I don't think anyone would have expected 600-plus runs on, on, on that, that cold February day over there in New Plymouth. But what a performance by uh, the big, stocky, barrelly captain, uh, Arjuna Ranatunga, yeah. who four years later would uh, certainly put his name and the name of Sri Lankan cricket up in lights when he guided Sri Lanka to that World Cup final victory over Australia. But today, uh, on, that, on that day, pardon me, uh, 88 not out from 61 balls, dispatch the ball everywhere. That'll be a good strike rate in 2020 today, Paul, let alone... He, he would be a great 2020 player. No, 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 let alone back in 1992, where the, the median score would be a bit, would be between 200 and 230. If you could get uh, 230 or 240 back in the, the early 90s, you were, you were backing your bowling and your fielding unit to get you home. But, that, yeah, I, I wonder if Zimbabwe thought they might have had that game in the bag. They probably couldn't believe themselves yeah. after such a dominant performance, particularly by Andy Flower at the top of the order. Uh, but then the, the day really belonged to uh, to the Sri Lankan middle order who were able just to – it didn't matter where Zimbabwe were, were bowling or pitching the ball uh, when Arjuna Ranatunga was at the crease because the ball was just sailing over the rope, sailing through cover, sailing over point. It was uh, it was a masterful innings. And not just, you know, on a small ground because back in the day there were no ropes, no boundary ropes whatsoever. Well, apart from Perth in the early days because the ground was perceived as still pretty big. But in New Plymouth – just hills, parklands, and beautiful picnic surroundings with no boundary ropes whatsoever, and plenty of runs were the norm. I mean, just going to Zimbabwe's innings, you know, Andy Flower, as you mentioned, 115, Arn at 52, and Waller 83, four for 312. In those days, that was just a mountain. Today, it, it, it's the new norm. You know, 300 yeah. plus in a one-day game is the new norm. But back then, it just seemed like Sri Lanka wouldn't chase this total because you know it was so steep and and the standard of targets in one-day games, as you mentioned before, was much lower than that. Yeah, and uh, it's very different to today where, as you mentioned, yeah, 300 is the par, but with the the introduction of 2020 cricket, a lot of the batsmen actually prefer chasing because they know what they have to get. That was very, very different in 1992. I don't think any of those Sri Lankan batsmen probably had been in a position, whether it was first-class cricket in Sri Lanka or international cricket, where they'd been in a position where they had to chase six and over, albeit on a small ground. So uh, there wasn't as if the, there was the, the planning uh, and, and the scheming that we see in today's international cricket or, or even domestic cricket where the players know, oh, we just need to just keep hitting this mark per over. I think uh, I think Sri Lanka just thought, well, we're just going uh, to try and get our eyes in and, and as soon as they're a bad ball there, we're going to have to go after it and, and just uh, chance our arm a little bit and hope that Lady Luck is on her side, and it, it certainly was. There was a, there was a few skied uh, balls. There was a few balls that were slashed over the top of the cordon and over the top of the infield. And and I, I wonder whether that performance there, Paul, um, was was the nucleus for what Sri Lanka did four years later, where they rejuvenated One Day Cricket uh, mm-hmm. by attacking almost like a blitzkrieg in the first fifteen overs. Kalawitharana uh, and Sanath Jayasuriya at the top of the order almost dared the, uh, the, the the bowlers to to bowl at them uh, anywhere they wanted because in those first 15 overs, they would often be 100 that had laid the platform for them and maybe they learned something and maybe uh, Ranatunga learned something from that performance in New Plymouth against Zimbabwe. I reckon that match, you know, may have been a small part of that nucleus for what Sri Lanka were going to do. You know, it seems that, you know, they had this new, you know, psychology in a one-day game, so whether it's batting first or batting second – go hard at every ball, really attack for the first 15 overs. Because also back in the day, there were no power plays. You know, none of the fielding or batting power plays. It was only two men outside the circle. And that made it very, very tough for Sri Lanka early on. But, you know, they got themselves going with Hanamar and uh, Samarika Sakera with 128 runs stands in Barbwe, then got back into the game with Edo Brandes taking two wickets. And that day as well, Ranatunga batted at number five, which was his prime position for a while. Then he batted uh, at number three and number 
number four uh, during that 96 time. But lower down in the order, I felt Ranatunga was a lot more comfortable mm. because he was a really good attacking player, especially off the front foot. His cover drives were just something else. Yeah, he was a great player in, in, in both formats, Paul, but particularly in ODIs. Maybe not coming up against the old ball, but coming up against the older the older ball. It's kind of similar to, to why Steve Ward didn't bat right up the top of the order when he was uh, playing for the Australian cricket side. And yeah, I thought that was a, a good position. But there was almost a, a, a bit of, of swagger or arrogance about Ranatunga, wasn't it? And I think we, we talk about leadership, we talk about captaincy as we have so far in this program, but I think his leadership and captaincy almost created this belief uh, in Sri Lanka, not just in this game, but but in further years to come, just how damaging they can they can be and to believe in their ability. Uh, Rosha Mahanamo, as you talked about, a really aggressive opening batsman. And, and then obviously uh, Aravinda De Silva in the middle order, one of the classiest Sri Lankans to, to ever play the game up there with Kumar Sangakara. Uh, but the leadership of Ranatunga for, uh, for Sri Lanka to, to believe in their own ability and, and not for them uh, to be like Zimbabwe, just making up the numbers. They were there to, to certainly get some tongues wagging and, and over the next probably decade, we saw some fantastic, exciting cricket from Sri Lanka, which started on this day at, at, in February in New Plymouth, uh, led by Ranatunga. And it wasn't the only win, of course, after that. You know, they beat South Africa as well, which was quite a big surprise too, considering how powerful South Africa had been in the yeah. first game. But, but on that day, you know, a catalyst was set for the future over there at New Plymouth. And then in 1996, Lahore, 60,000 fans, they beat Australia in the final and won their first World Cup and the first to do a batting second as well. But, of course, that day becoming the first ever side to chase down 300 as a target in a World Cup match. Simply unbelievable. At Fifth Quarter Tees, we're devoted to helping clubs access their own club wear and merchandise throughout the season. No more worrying about that start of season mass purchase. Of 100 club jumpers that take two years to sell and have to be stored in a club room cupboard. Instead, club coaches, members and supporters can have 24-7 access to all club wear and merchandise. From jumpers and t-shirts to backpacks and mugs. And all it takes is a click of a button. Fifth Quarter Tees, making life easier for clubs and volunteers. Number two. Now we go from batting to bowling. Number two on our uh, list of heroic feats in the 92 World Cup, the Sultan of Swing, Wazim Akram. You know, looking back on his career, I don't think I've ever come across a better left-arm bowler in his era than Wazim Akram. He was just simply unbelievable, not just, you know, as a, as a bowler, but he could even bat as well. And, and on this day in the final in Melbourne against England, he did it all. Well, I'm pretty sure he has. He, he got a double century next to his name. I think he scored a double century against Zimbabwe in Test match cricket. So, yes. and often, oftentimes when uh, when Pakistan was short on batting quality, he would bat up at number six or number seven. So he really had it all. A fantastic bowler, as you mentioned in those 1980s, 1990s. I don't know if there was a there was a better swing bowler. Uh, and then obviously he had Wakar Yunus that came along, and what a yeah. one-two punch that was opening uh, opening the batsman. What a combo! 
Yeah, I think Mark Taylor and Michael Slater still have uh, bad memories from when they played them in the, in the 95-96 summer when they came over here. But, uh, yeah, fantastic performer. And it was almost like he had the ball in a string a lot of the times, wasn't it? It was He would come over and it was, it was almost like those – those old swing king balls you would uh, you would get for Christmas yeah. ball that, like, were weighted on one side and they would just kind of hoop through the air or the the old tape across the tennis ball. It was it was prodigious swing like this. He wasn't moving a little bit like that was really hooping and with, with him coming left arm over the wicket, full outside the off stump, swinging back into the stumps. You wouldn't want to be in a batsman in that tournament and, no. and what he had as well. Not at all. You wouldn't want to be a batsman, you know, facing Aussie Macron. But but why he was so suited to these conditions because of the rules at the time, you know, two new balls at each end, and that allowed for the new and old balls at both ends to swing both ways. And Aussie Macron took complete advantage of that and, and was used very, very well by Imran Khan, you know, not just as a, a run container, but also as a key wicket taker as well. He wanted him to take wickets, and, and that's what he did in that final. We'll get into that in just a moment, but the way he, you know, conducted himself with the bat in that that day when Pakistan were, you know, starting to slide again after Imran Khan and Javed Mandat had got themselves a good partnership, uh, ended uh, with about ten, uh, five or ten overs to go. And then Akram suddenly comes in and just starts flaming all these deliveries yeah. on the leg side. I think it was one shot that he hit over mid-wicket that was just effortless and 33 off 19, simply unbelievable. When his team needed him, he delivered. And on that day in the final, he was something else with a bat. Yeah, he was. And I think him and Imran Khan were very similar in terms of, of the leadership and, and the great capabilities they, they showed to the rest of their team. That wasn't the first time that Wazim Akram had been able to, to lift his side with, with both bat and ball. And obviously he had a bit of a say in the final as well for Pakistan. And what, and what a bowler for Imran Khan to, to be able to, to rely on because he was so consistent. He had such a great temperament for a fast bowl. They're not always known for their great temperament, but, but Wazim certainly had such a great temperament. And being able to put the ball in the right areas I know we're talking about international cricket and these guys were professionals but as a swing bowler it is incredibly difficult when you're swinging the ball that much as well and in the conditions that he he played and obviously played in a few games in New Zealand as well which is is beneficial to swing but it be able to swing the ball in Australia as well and be able to control that as well and pretty much put it on a dime to really struggle with the batsman was probably one of the most impressive uh, aspects aspects for me uh, from from Wazim's career uh, to, to stand up in this 92 campaign where there was obviously a lot of pressure from from back home with with Pakistan and um, there you know, obviously been been murmurs of, of some of the players uh, maybe not deserving spots in 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 the team but uh, Wazim was absolutely fantastic in that tournament and. and this was this was his crowning glory, and this this was his day, Paul. It certainly was, and it'd also be his night as well. Having it been a, a day-night game under lights at the MCG, when the lights came on and there was a, a little bit of dew on the ground, he was able to get some extra movement off yeah. the scene. And it all started in his first over when England came out to bat, dismissing the uh, the great straight-talking pinch hitter Ian Botham. First mm-hmm. over, little bit of bounce uh, outside off stump. Ian tried to play forward and uh, got an outside edge uh, and was out caught behind off Moen Khan. First over, Wazi Macram already set his mark that day. Well, that's right. He was he was the linchpin, Ian Botham. I guess you could look at a couple of other members of that that uh, that top order for for England, but Botham certainly was the one that um, was was so confident and could go out there and score runs really quickly and take the game away from the opposition. And to be able to get a wicket in your first over really just knocks the stuffing out of the opposition side. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and Wasm certainly had uh, yeah, Ian Botham's number. And it was just such a beautiful ball, short of a length, outside the off stump, slight bit of movement, almost 
kind of attracting Botham to come forward and just poke at it before leaving late and, and, and collecting the edge and going through to Mohan Khan behind the stumps. Uh, great delivery and uh, and what a great start for for Wazimakram. But the best was uh, the best was certainly still to come. Absolutely right, of course. You know, and 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 that's how important Wazimakram was as a bowler. You know, Imran Khan would give him the ball at just the opportune time for him to take wickets because Imran Khan said in interviews he didn't want to use Wazim as a run container. He wanted him to take wickets and bowl express and knock the stuffing right out of the opposition. And it was at a time when the, I think it was Alan Lamb and Neil Fairbrother got themselves going about fifth wicket partnership that was starting to look really, really good. And then Imran hands uh, Wazim Akram the ball and then in just two straight deliveries bowls some of the best reverse swingers one could ever see from round the wicket, no less. We'll go to Alan Lamb first. Great delivery, left arm round the wicket. Lamb trying to play for him, just knocks it off stump. Mm. And uh, the Pakistan team were, you know, really enjoying that because that was such a, a swift in-swinger. Well, that's a, that was the thing with Wazim Akram all throughout his career in, in both formats that he played was he was just able to get the, get things going from from pretty much the the opening ball. He did that in the first over, and then to come back and, and remove both set batsmen that were really starting to trouble the Pakistanis a little bit uh, with uh, with their partnership and the, the time that had been spent at the wicket. But he was just so reliable, uh, Wazim Akram, and uh, yeah, just was able to, to perform at the highest level when, when Pakistan needed him. Whenever there was a, a wicket to be taken or runs to be scored or a catch to be made, Wazim Akram was normally uh, one of those players that was in the thick of the action. And, and what a reliable performer for, for Imran Khan to have to, to go to him. Uh, and just such a marvellous tournament even prior to that game against England. But this really just kind of put the cherry on top of the cake for Wazim Akram and, and proved to everyone that he was uh, arguably the greatest swing bowler in the world. But there was another cherry still to be added. Next ball, Chris Lewis. The same delivery. Lewis looked like the ball was, felt like the ball was going just a little bit shorter, left a, a step back and across, and then the reverse swing came in, took his off stump again, and Wazi Macram was just jumping for joy. Two wickets in two balls with some of the best deliveries from around the wicket, and that really was the momentum changer in the game. England never recovered from that, and Wazi Macram made his stamp on that final. I think he ended up getting three for 49 in that final and won the Man of the Match award, which is such a notable achievement yeah. in your career to win a Man of the Match in a World Cup final. But Wazim Akram's spell at the MCG is something that all cricket fans, young and old, will never, never forget. Yeah, it was fantastic. Under pressure against an England side that would have fancied themselves. Uh, no one really knew a whole lot about the build-up with, with the Pakistan side and, and uh, I guess... We'd seen in the in the lead up tournaments that they'd been a little bit inconsistent. They played one day as in Australia before and hadn't been totally convincing. Um, they drifted in and out of form from time to time, but that tournament really uh, was one that belonged to them. And and poor old Chris Lewis, you wouldn't want to be a batsman having to come in and face was a Macron all fired oh. up. It wasn't just his swing bowling. It was the pace that he delivered at it as well. Such pace. Regularly above 140 kilometres an hour in an era where that wasn't uh, uh, as popular as, as it is today. We see everyone bowl at minimum 140 these days. Uh, but back then, no, no one was was bowling that quick. Uh, and, uh, yeah, delivering the swinging ball at that pace, it almost became impossible to play. Uh, it was it was almost like it was, was in Macron's world and, uh, and the English batsmen were just playing in it. And that world was with 87,000 people and they were just cheering him on. It was just unbelievable. And the fact that he got so much swing in just one delivery, two deliveries for that matter, so much swing from round the wicket, nearly identically the same position where the ball left his hand and went onto the off stump. It was just amazing and testament to his skill because a lot of fans don't realise why, you know, he hit his non-bowling hand 
uh, from his bowling hand, you know, when he was coming into bowl, when he was nearing the popping crease. That's to keep the batsman guessing as to where he was going to swing the ball. And uh, those England batsmen were certainly bamboozled by that. <laughs> and naturally, we go to number one. Number one. And number one would have to be one of the best displays of captaincy, not just for a game, but for a whole campaign. And that is Imran Khan and his approach to play like cornered tigers in the World Cup. It's an unbelievable theme to have and something I don't think we've seen in a game in a in a tournament mm. since then. I mean, Imran Khan, his middle name should really be leader. I mean, because not only yeah. led Pakistan to World Cup triumph. He's now the prime minister. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're spot on. Yeah, it was it was fantastic, and it's 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 almost like the Rocky Balboa story, isn't it? Like on mm. on on your haunches, like and no one believes in us. Um, you're the only ones that, uh, that that can believe in ourselves, and we've got to go out there and prove to everyone uh, why we belong here, why we're the why we're the best side in the world. And it's great. It's it's that it's that psychology, Paul. It's that yeah, backed into a corner. Um, let's uh, let's really show show from what we're made of, and that was fantastic because that can fire up players. And I think that's that is a job of a captain. It's a, it's a job of a captain to lead their side out in the field and obviously make fielding changes and bowling changes and all of the things that come along with cricket. But it's a, a psychological thing as well, being able to make sure that your side is up for the game and uh, yeah, encouraging them. Uh, some young players in that side that certainly would have uh, would have ate that up for, for breakfast, the, the, the encouragement from, from Imran Khan. And even I think you, you, you mentioned that um, he had the, 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 the Pakistan Tiger T-shirt that, that he wore as well. Um, so he, he, really believe, he, he really grew into it and believed in it. And when you, you see your captain acting like that and your captain really buying into it, to a process or an idea, then as a player you think, well, my captain's doing it. I'm, I'm all in as well. And, and look look at the dividends it paid for the Pakistanis. If one gets on board, you know, it's only fitting that right. the others follow suit. But it didn't start off well for Imran and Pakistan. In fact, he didn't even play in the first two games. I think they lost by 10 wickets to the West Indies in Melbourne. And then they came back to beat Zimbabwe by 53 runs in Hobart. Then we go to the England game in Adelaide. Very un-Adelaide conditions. And I think Pakistan were bowled out for 74. And then when it looked like it was going to be just yeah. a crushing loss, then comes Uncle Huey from above to, uh, you know, <laughs> abandon the game and award both sides a point. And I can remember watching the colour, a cricketing colour documentary five years ago and Wazim Akram said, Imran went to every player in the dressing room and said, this is God helping us because they had a, another unique theme as well because if you remember, it was played during Ramadan time in February mm. March. Which would have been very, very difficult. Um, yeah, people that don't understand, no, like no food and no water uh, during uh, sunrise to sunset. And uh, when you're playing, uh, when you're playing professional cricket, that is uh, pretty difficult. When you are, uh, you're not having any fluids or any food into your into your body. So that was that was. I think that was the moment in the World Cup that really bonded the side uh, together as well, because they realised that uh, they'd been been given uh, an opportunity uh, by God or by Mother Nature to uh, to have a second bite at, at the competition, and particularly after such a poor batting performance, England bowled well that day. Uh, but Pakistan were well below below their best and they were never a chance of winning that game. And, and, and after that, they just seemed to be a more re- rejuvenated and united side. So I don't know whether the fact that Imran Khan had gone to each player uh, and told them uh, what you just previously said, Paul, or, or whether it was a bonding knowing that it was now do or die for them, but they seemed to be yeah, a much more united side and uh, that, uh, that kind of Cornered, uh, cornered aggression that they were able to build uh, was uh, was the theme for for the rest of the tournament. 
So they traded a win, a loss, and a no result. They then got beaten by India. And then they travel to Perth to play uh, the Australians at the WACA ground. And there emerges the the corner tiger theme, as we mentioned, and they turned in one of their perfect performances in the preliminary games. They smashed the Aussies. And I reckon that game really set Pakistan up and set Imran Khan up, you know, for another great reign of inspiration on his players because that was the first really good performance against a a favoured side to win the World Cup like Australia, who had played so well in in that that lead-up. They had to as well because they've been uh, they've been beaten by India, uh, one of their their bitter arch rivals. And if you speak to any Pakistan fans or players, they absolutely hate it when they go down to their neighbours. Uh, there's certainly no love lost between them. So they knew that they had to stand up. And and what a destructive performance it was to to beat uh, to beat Australia, the the home nation as well that had quality all o- all over the park. Um, and I think the home fans were, were almost bang for Pakistan blood uh, in that game, thinking that Australia could could just roll over it and romp through them. But Pakistan just outplayed them. They outplayed them in, in all three facets of the game, batting, bowling and fielding. And uh, Imran Khan led from the front with his great captaincy and great leadership, rotating his bowlers regularly, uh, smart, intuitive uh, field placings, which caught the Australians out. And and the, the, the Australian side was, was simply outplayed and outcaptained. Yeah, and a loss that would ultimately cost... Australia a final spot and of course Pakistan would be the gainers out of that because uh, they would jump at the fourth place after winning their remaining two games against Sri Lanka and New Zealand but what was also good about Imran Khan speaking of him as a player and a captain he was also very tactical at critical times in the semi against New Zealand when Pakistan lost uh, an early wicket thanks to Danny Morrison he made a massive decision to promote himself up the order batting at number three imagine that a captain doing that at a semi-final in the world cup only Imran Khan could do it and he pulled it off yeah and it was it was a stroke of genius it just shows some people are made to captain and and, and others I guess gradually uh, build up the repertoire and able to become solid um solid captains for their country but he was he was built for that he had as we mentioned before he had great leadership but that intuition to 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 pull something out of the hat, almost like what we spoke about earlier in the tournament with uh, with with Martin Crow and opening the bowling with an with an off spinner in that first match against the Australians, trying something different, trying to rejuvenate his side with with uh, 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 something out of left field, that left field top approach, Paul, uh, and he performed with a bat as well. Um, and and obviously we've spoken about Wasim Akram before, but Imran Khan, probably one of the greatest all rounders to ever play the game, uh, and. Uh, Unfortunately, his, his batting probably doesn't get spoken about as much as his bowling because we've seen some superb feats with the ball uh, in his international career with Pakistan. Um, but uh, it, was, it was his batting that, that did the talking uh, in this particular occasion and uh, guided Pakistan to, a, to an impressive win. Yeah, four wickets it was at the end against New Zealand, and he would do it again three days later in the final against uh, England when they were two for 24 at one stage. They lost uh, Raja and Sahail very early on, and then Imran Khan and Javed Miandad produced a great partnership, and Imran Khan again said on instinct, I want to bat at number three, rejuvenate the Pakistan innings, and made a, a very, very good 72, including some great shots down the track. And again, him setting up the innings, getting it going, worked and then his leadership as we mentioned with Wazi Macram being handed the ball his field placements all were brilliant and how fitting how fitting it was for him to be a part of the last wicket not only of the World Cup but his career as well talk about going out on a high note 
Yeah, it was a marvellous performance, wasn't it? And and uh, so fitting for him as well, Paul. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with that. He was, um, yeah, he'd been such a great servant for Pakistan cricket for a long time. And let's not forget, in Australia, he'd been very, very popular as well. Fans had always loved him. He he, he came out and spent a summer with uh, with New South Wales in the 1980s as well and helped them capture the Sheffield Shield. So he's certainly, uh, I guess, a bit of an adopted son from the Australian public. And, and uh, we know how much the Australians hate the English. So I think everyone in Australia would have certainly been yeah. cheering on the Pakistanis uh, for a win. And what a monumental night that, that would have been for them. A, a crowning achievement for them, led by some fantastic batting performances. But Imran Khan, I, I, I dare say, without him, uh, they wouldn't have even made the semifinals, not just for his leadership and his captaincy, but his uh, performing, uh, his uh, great batting and bowling skills, which got Pakistan over the line in so many games. And, and from such a... Chaotic start as well. Uh, lose, uh, Imran Khan not playing in the first game and then the Raindat game, losing to India. Uh, and then, I guess, labouring past Zimbabwe in, in one of the earlier group games and then having to beat Australia just to be, be into the final four. It really was, I feel like it, it was very Pakistan-like. It, it certainly wasn't going to be an easy tournament for them them to win. They did it the hard way and, and what a satisfying way for him to end his career. And they were so cool under pressure, you know, going on with that as well. They were so cool under pressure. They never seemed to crack, you know, in, in those games. And in that final, they didn't at all. You know, they showed their cool temperament under pressure. And if you want to pick a defining image of that World Cup, it's got to be Imran Khan holding the Crystal Trophy, you know. To see him, you know, after so long, after 21 years in the game, bowing out and holding the World Cup in front of 87,000 at the MCG and to say that, you know, he finally was so happy that in the twilight of his career he managed to win the World Cup, I don't think there is a better World Cup exit. You, could, you, you have Glenn McGrath in 2007. You have Michael Clark in 2015. Nothing's going to top the way Imran Khan exited in 1992. Yeah, now particularly the way he put Pakistan on his back and was able to get them through so many difficult periods as well. And and obviously the unrest at home as well. Um, I, I think there were, certainly would have been a lot of Pakistan fans back home that might have been doubting some of the team selections and, and even uh, some of the gambles he made by promoting himself up to uh, up to number three at times during that tournament. Uh, but it just showed the class that, that he omitted from himself, being able to lead those younger players around him and, and beat so many quality sides as well. It wasn't as if Pakistan came up against weak sides in that tournament they had to do it the hard way they played uh, like South Africa and India and Australia and then obviously uh, getting past England in the final uh, it was uh, yeah just an amazing performance uh, having beaten a plucky New Zealand side in the semi-final that had been led by Martin Crow. Uh, yeah it, it, it would have been uh, one of the finest things uh, in his career I know he's Prime Minister of Pakistan now but I'm sure uh, holding up that uh, that World Cup trophy in 1992 having put his side on his back would certainly be up there in the, in the, some of the top achievements of his life. Can't agree with you anymore, mate. Simply amazing. And uh, it's been an amazing time, mate, you know, counting down the six historic feats of uh, the 1992 World Cup. Some great inspirational performances. And uh, I've really enjoyed uh, chatting with you uh, about that. Thanks so much for your time, mate. It's been, uh, it's been fantastic. And I uh, hopefully look forward to hearing more of your dulcet tones in cricket uh, this coming summer. Yeah, definitely, Paul. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, yeah, it's been been really good chatting the last hour or so about cricket. It's always nice to, to go into the history books and, and uh, yeah, look at tournaments uh, past uh, that have that have impacted our game, much like uh, we've been talking about over the last hour. And, it, yeah, it really is, um, yeah, fun to talk about some legends of our game that uh, that will go down as some of the best best ever in the ODI format. So thanks for having me on. And, it's, yeah, it's been, been fun chatting cricket as always, Paul. Paul Persick Presents is a series written, edited and presented by me, Paul Persick.
If you would like to check out Paul Persick Presents social media content, you can go onto the show pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Episodes are available on SoundCloud, Wooshka, Podbean, Anchor FM, and on iHeartRadio. If you have a sporting event that you would like to see as a future series of Paul Persick Presents, then comment on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Paul Persick Presents is a Persick Spooner production.